Matthew chapter 6. The title of the message today is Prayer to the Father. And we're going to be picking up our... Um, picking up our study this morning, midway through one of Jesus' most famous teachings, uh, referred to commonly as the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to be focusing our attention on what Jesus uh, taught about praying. So today we're going to be looking at what that, that Jesus teaches us to pray because we actually naturally don't know how. Jesus teaches us to pray because we are fallen, sinful men and women, and on our own, we will just use prayer as a means to selfish gain. Jesus teaches us to pray because he has redeemed our relationship to the Father, and we have need to learn to pray in light of this new relationship and the redemption that he's provided. Let's look at the text and we'll read through it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. It says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. And in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would open up your word to us today. Lord, that you would guide my speech, that I would um, speak your words. Lord, may we be drawn into your presence in prayer as we go over this section of Scripture. May it excite our hearts to pray. Lord, to know you and to grow in greater depth of a relationship to you, to hear you and and carry out your words. We just thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, how many of you guys have been to Ikea before? You like that place, right? It's a big giant building filled with furniture. And it looks great. You walk through all the models, and you're like, oh, this looks so awesome. I'm going to buy that bed, or I'm going to buy that dresser, and I'm going to put it up in my house. And you, get, you go down there, and you go down to the basement area, or whatever you want to call it, and you pick out this box, and it's really flat, and all the pieces and everything are in that one box. And then you get home, and you're like, i got to set this thing up now. And you pull it out, and you see all the parts and all the pieces are laid out everywhere. How many of you at that point would just start building? Yeah, my dad, yeah. (laughs) So thank you for being honest, yes. Because I'm probably more prone to do that as well. Well, they have a picture up there. I'm just going to start building it uh, and, and make it. But it comes with this paper inside, and it's called the instructions. And what's often, what I always, the reason I picked out Ikea when I was thinking of this illustration is because I remember on those instructions, usually they have a big like picture and it's kind of cartoony looking and it's got either a big X on it or it's got a big check standing for what not to do and what to do. And so 
Jesus gives us instruction concerning prayer on what to do and what not to do. And he does this by making examples of certain people that Jesus' disciples would have seen, actions they would have been familiar with. And so he goes on starting his teaching about prayer by listing these examples of what not to do. So look with me in verse 5. It says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So what is a hypocrite? It's somebody who's a pretender or an actor. It means it's somebody who's playing a role or a part on the stage. They would wear masks at times. It wasn't the the person who was up there acting was not the person they were portraying. And oftentimes we can watch movies and we think, oh, I wonder if that's how that actor or actress really is in real life. But it led to a deeper kind of convicting situation. It was a a willful and uh, continuous attempt to produce a false impression. It carries a bad connotation when when it comes in contact with God or religion, in a sense. Especially in religion, it marks somebody who is of extreme distance from the truth loving God, meaning that they're playing a role, but they don't know the person that they say they they don't know the person that they say they do. So what does a hypocrisy look like? It looks like a good religious person, with Jesus' example here, a good religious person, but it's somebody that's whose true motives are hidden. It's someone who does something to be seen by others as religious and good. And I know that this is something that every one of us has ever, we've, we've all struggled with this at one point. We don't want people to look at us bad. We don't want to paint a bad picture for somebody. Oftentimes we are hesitant to confess sin in our lives to a brother because we don't want them to know how truly bad we are. But in the motive of prayer, Jesus says that hypocrites are praying so as to be seen by somebody else and that they love to be seen by other people. So they're praying not out of love to God, but the attention that they receive from other people. Often, the example was given of of the Jews of the day standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. These were the usual places of prayer in the synagogues and on the, and the street corners where crowds stopped for business or for talk. And then if the hour of prayer uh, happened at that moment, the Pharisee would then strike an attitude of prayer, somewhat like uh, modern um, Muslims, and they would um, be praying right at that moment. So if they go out from the synagogue and it happens to be, oh, it's that time, they'll just stand on the corner, they'll get their prayer shawl on, they would they would wrap up and do their thing, and then they would start reciting the prayers because it was the hour. Uh, in Islam, we see they'll roll out the prayer uh, rugs, and then they'll lay down and they'll do the, the prayer, or bow down and do the prayer. It was a, a religious routine. But Jesus draws attention to their hearts and the motive behind it by saying that they wanted to be seen by other men. There's nothing wrong with being routine in your worship to the Lord, but the motive falls onto where it's coming from, why you're doing it. Jesus described a scene similar to this in a parable in Luke. In Luke 18, uh, verse 19, it says that Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, who would have been the bad dude in the situation, who would have been looked on as evil and conniving. 
And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow, what a very clear picture of what Jesus was describing when he meant those who stood to receive attention from men, who loved the attention from men and were praying out loud. The point to learn here in this first what not to do is that the heart's motive is known by God. God sees all of our hearts. Prayer is meant to engage God, not to impress man. Rather than impressing God and receiving rewards from him, we squander the time to impress our fellow man. What a waste, right? It's an insult to to God when we mouth words towards God, but really are trying to impress others. Using God as a tool. You know, the psalmist prays in Psalm 139, verse 23, and let this be our prayer if we find this happening within us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's nothing hid from him. He is the one who sees all things. Now we have the instruction. So Jesus sets an example and then he gives us instruction as well. In verse 6, follow with me. It says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room. It described like a closet or a storehouse. Uh, It potentially could even mean like a separate apartment or one's private chamber. A den where you would just go and you could withdraw from the world and shut the door and just commune with God. You know, I, I have in my, in our house, we have this little, like, room over the top. I call it an office, but it's probably hardly an office of any sorts. But it's just this room over our garage. It has no heat going in there, so i got to have a, you know, mobile heater. But that's my place, man. I love going up there. I love being able to read. It kind of, is there a place that we have set up in our lives where we can kind of draw away from? and spend time with the Lord. Maybe, you know, maybe we don't have a busy house or kids, and so we can find that one chair, you know, or maybe it's this one place where we can just sit and, and draw near to him. Jesus, he didn't have a home, right? He didn't have a place unless somebody had him stay at their house. But in Mark one thirty-five, it says, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and that's where he prayed. Jesus, it doesn't actually, you don't even have to have a room. You could just, it's just that wanting to draw away and spending time with him. The idea is to pray in such a way, in such a place that you won't be tempted to impress others. Find that place. It's between you and the Lord. This is what he desires. He desires that intimate time with us. And talking to him. And our, our exhortation is to guard that time with the Father is precious. Because look what it says. It says that the Father who sees you, there's no place that God can't see. There's no place where we could go from him. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no place that we can escape him. 
And it's exciting because that means we can draw away wherever it is. I remember when I, when I was at work, that place was my car. I, just, I got out of the building and I went there and I just, give it to me, Lord. I want to hear you. Help me. Forgive me because I just blew it in there or whatever. You know, it was, it, I was, that was the place to go so that I can meet with him. And I wanted to hear from him. What's wonderful about our Lord, too, is that even though we're drawing away from Him secretly, or He doesn't hide that. That's not just something that He... It's almost like He gets excited and He rewards us openly for that time spent away with Him. In Hebrews, and we went over this last week, without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. God wants to reward us. And what might that reward look like? Maybe we're at a troublesome time. Maybe it's a tumultuous time in our lives. Maybe we're going through trial and we draw away to Him and we go into that closet and we pray and then He rewards us with peace. We go out and we have peace. We have a way of, of expressing patience maybe in a, in a tense situation. He changes us from within and He rewards us openly so that, that it's not hidden what He has done in our lives. If a man is praying on a corner, Lord, thank You for that I'm not like the sinner over here. And if we look at that image and then we contrast it with the one who sent a uh, set aside and went away to him. God gets the glory through the one, and man is getting glory through the other. I don't know about you guys. I want to be the one that, when people see me, God is glorified. That's what the Christian lives for. That's why we bear his name, Christian. You know, Christ gets the glory. He openly rewards us. Now, does this mean we shouldn't pray in public? No. Not at all. We see public prayer happening in the Bible. We see corporate prayer among the disciples. What is warned against is the motive of the heart. If we're only gathering with the church to pray out loud and be seen by others, that's what God says. He puts the big X on. Our motive is to be questioned, are we praying to God or to be seen by man? Let's pray with David and say, Lord, search my heart and know me. The next section here shows that we have a Father that knows our needs. In verse 7, when you pray, he says, Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. We are shown those of the Gentile nations. Anybody that was not uh, Jew by nationality, was considered a Gentile, and, and heathen refers to the, the Gentiles or the nations uh, that were not Jewish. And we're given the example of how they pray. As the Gentiles do, says Jesus, the pagan thought that by endless repetitions and many words, they would inform their gods as to their needs and weary them into granting their requests. What an interesting way to think about that. It was a commentator named Bruce. He said that they would say these words hoping to earn their favor, to weary them into granting their requests. Unlike the hypocrites who prayed to be seen by others, the heathen repeated their prayers to be heard. And this is in contrast by the Father who hears and knows the things we have need of. They were genuinely seeking uh, the answers to their prayers, but they were genu genu uh, genuinely wrong, seeking them from false gods who could not hear. Prayers that just repeat themselves over and over again to gain God's favor, they're meaningless. They expend efforts to receive needs from a deaf idol or a false god. Prayer like this is based in without relationship. It's a constant grasping at a God or God, trying to earn favor and hoping to have our needs met. 
uh, went out to lunch with a brother yesterday and he shared this brilliant thing with me. He had no clue what I was teaching. Well, I don't think I told him what I was teaching on, but that's not the context of our conversation. And he brought this illustration out. I said, like, can I use this tomorrow? And, and he was like, yeah, absolutely. It's God's illustration. But we were talking and he was telling, describing this time when he went to the uh, Sudan and was doing missionary work over there. And they would gather in the church there and have the church service. Now, many Muslims would come along and they would, they would be huddled up around the door listening. And they're like, well, that's odd, you know. But they knew they wouldn't come into the church because they actually could um, lose their lives for it. Uh, or there was some very drastic um, punishments for going into the Christian church. But they would listen at the door. And when they asked why they would do that, uh, they responded, we like to hear your prayers. You pray as though you know God. And they would ask them to continue to pray so they could listen. Because their concept of God is not one that they have relationship with, but it's one they have to earn favor and hope to get to heaven. And that's what Jesus is contrasting here. He goes, guys, I don't want you guys praying out of religion. I want you to know the true relationship you can have with the Father. I want you to know that intimacy you can have with Him. The prayer of a Christian is based in a relationship, not in some religious routine. Jesus responds or uh, exhorts them in verse 8, and he says, Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. Jesus goes on to reveal more of who the Father is, how he is all knowing that there's nothing that we can ask him that he didn't already know about. So when we come to him, it's, it's, we're just like, hey, you know what's happening. You don't have to ramble on. We don't have to get his attention. We don't have to pace back and forth or do some weird things to get his attention. He already knows us. He knows what we have need. This changes drastically how we pray. Are we praying to earn his favor? Are we praying because he's our father and he knows these things? How well we apply this truth will be reflected in how and what we pray. Now, this might be a bad example, and I'm, I hope it goes across, but when I was thinking about this, I thought about social media. And I remember when I was more of an active user of it, I'm still on Instagram and I'll post photos and things here, but I remember when I was more of an active user and it became more popular that you would go to a friend, maybe you hadn't seen in maybe a week, and you really wouldn't have anything to talk with them about because they already knew what was going on based off of how much I would post. Oh, I said, oh, well, I you know, went to such and such a place. Oh yeah, I saw that on your feed. And that was all they wanted to know anymore. It was a breakdown of communication. But it's not the same with the Father because we don't even have to point anything out. We don't have to make a post about such and such a thing for him to know. He knows it beforehand. There's nothing that we say to him that he is surprised by. And so we know that we have a father that we pray to who knows our needs and we can simply come to him. So the two points to remember is that the father knows the motive of our hearts. And that's, for one, that's convicting. Causes us to look and to to judge where we stand before him. And two, our Father knows our needs and how comforting that is. We can come to a Father that's not unaware of where we're at. So Jesus addresses these two situations and then he goes on to give the model for prayer. Unfortunately, the prayer that we're about to go through oftentimes is used in a repetitive sense. Many churches will take this prayer and then they just repeat it to the point that it, it loses any kind of meaning to it. Uh, we could recite it without having to think about even the words that we're saying. 
And they're doing it really to gain favor with the Lord. But if we take this prayer and we meditate upon the lines and we understand what, it's, what Jesus is showing us about our relationship with the Father, it becomes very special. It causes us to want to draw near to the Father. He says in verse 9, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In light of all that he just said and revealed to us about wrong ways to pray and how to pray, where to go, the attitude of which to approach prayer, Jesus gives a model to go by based on what he just taught. These are the words, the structure, the attitude of the heart of somebody or someone who the, whose father is God. And the first line, our father. It's the relationship of God to his people, and it's described as a father to his children. Paul tells us that the Spirit will affirm this in the life of a believer. In Galatians, he says, Because you were sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba being that, that, that um, intimate relationship. Abba. It's like saying, Daddy. In Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit Himself witnesses with our spirit that we're the children of God. So as believers, we are invited into this father-son relationship or father-daughter relationship with the Lord. And whose father is he? Well, he's ours. But what's interesting is even though he's preaching or teaching to the individual on how to pray, he's also including it as a plural word. He's not just our father alone, but he's our Father, the body of the church. There's a unity among us because we share the same Father. He's reminding us that we have brothers and sisters who have the same access to the same Father, who share in that same relationship. And this may blend into some of his later exhortations to this prayer. Now, some of us, when we hear the word Father, we bring some baggage to this, this idea of God being a father, because we automatically associate with our earthly father. You know, some of us had fathers that were good. Some of us have fathers that were bad. The good ones had their bad days, and some of the bad ones had good days. But there were some that were never around to begin with. And Jesus doesn't stop from using this title because he illustrated for us prior to who our Father is. He's the one who sees in secret. He's the one who knows our needs. In every way that your earthly father may have failed you, God is greater still. He knows us Intimately, he knows our hearts and he knows our needs. There's nothing hid from him and all is known to him and he invites us into this prayer. We pray to a heavenly father. And another thing that sets this father, Father God, apart from our earthly fathers is that he's in heaven. He's not limited as an earthly father. He's not a sinner or fallible like our earthly father. But he resides in heaven from where he created all things. This should cause us to slow down and think of the power and majesty of the one to whom we pray. Matthew, in Matthew 23, Jesus even warns us not to call anyone on earth our father, meaning from that kind of authoritative, uh, that authoritative way. But one is your Father who is in heaven, is what he says. He is not like us, not limited. He sees us and he is the creator. In Psalm 115, uh, 115 verse 3, but our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. 
In Psalm 123, unto you I lift my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. You know, there's a time when kids are young and they're, they're very impressed by their fathers. So much so that they might actually pit their father against another father. My dad's bigger than yours. You could totally beat your dad up, you know. They have this very high view of their fathers. And it should almost be the same with us. Boasting in the greatness of our Father who is in heaven. Drawing near to Him to know His power and His might. To know His strength. To know and see how much He has loved us. To be near to Him always because He is good and He is kind. And He's patient and loving. Yes, He will correct us. Yes, He has to deliver punishment. But He does it from a place of love because He wants to see the best for us. This is the Father we have. As we are accepted in Christ as a child of God, we should come to this realization too that God is our all-powerful Father who is enthroned in heaven in no way comparable, whether good or bad, to our Father, um, to our fathers here on earth. Hallowed be your name, He says. The name of uh, God's name of Father, it has been revealed, has been revealed to the disciples in Jesus Christ, and it should be kept holy among them. In this name, the whole content of the gospel is embraced. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that. And so we come to the name of the God the Father, and we're, we stand in awe that we can pray to such a Creator and claim one such as Himself as our Father in relationship in such a way. His name is honored among us because it speaks to the great salvation that He has accomplished for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. The psalmist says in chapter 9, And those who know Your name will put their trust in You. For You, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. What a great Father we have. And in the next petition, upon at the beginning of this prayer, so far, we've, we've, he's introduced us to our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The next petition, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Jesus directs his disciples to pray for the kingdom of the Father to come. In Jesus Christ, we see this kingdom coming in power on earth. We have seen Satan crushed and the powers of this world, sin and death broken. And the kingdom of God is still exposed to suffering and strife. So we see that the, Jesus came, and yet it's not fulfill, fully fulfilled that the kingdom has come. We see him reigning as king. We see him conquering death and shame on our behalf offering forgiveness, but yet the full reality of His kingdom hasn't come. And as His children, it should be our expectation and our longing to see that fullness of that kingdom come into fruition. To see where He is reigning and and sin and um, wickedness is done away with completely. That we might um, see His righteousness ruling and reigning on earth. And this, is, this pushes us to pray that His will would be done. What place does the will of God have in our prayers? This phrase expresses a resignation to our, of our will to His. And I thought, wow, that's pretty... I've never really thought about that element in this prayer. But when you look at it, that's what is happening here. And the, the example and the, the illustration of that is when we see Jesus going into the garden to pray before He is taken, to the, um, taken by the mob to be crucified. It's Jesus praying, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. 
You see, as a child of God, as we pray, as we're entering into this relationship with him, it affects our will. It, it causes us to look at our motives and our means of why we're approaching him. Jesus shows us that the Father's will being done on earth as it is in heaven is accomplished through the obedience of his own children, the disciples. Has God told you to do something for him? Has he been impressing upon your heart something that needs to be done? Has your been Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And there's a warning because sometimes we can be like the hypocrite and mouth the words, but the heart's not there. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus issues this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So the will is not just a a simple praying for it to be done, but a, a surrendering of ourselves to be that one that does the will of God in our lives. When we know the Father's will, it doesn't matter the cost, but it's our delight to do it. In Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalmist writes, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Something that was cherished. He wanted to follow through with God's will. And Jesus is saying that 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 is our focus. We could almost restate the beginning of this prayer is, Father, we desire the fullness of your kingdom to come, and we relinquish our will to see yours done on earth as it is in heaven until the day that your kingdom is set up. What is the Father's will for us? Well, John 6, 40 says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Our Father's will is that people will see the Son and believe in him. Now, how is the world to see the Son now that the Son is back in heaven? Through the body of Christ, through the church, through the members who gather together in his name and are praying, Lord, your will be done, not ours. We want to be your hands and your feet. We want to go out in your name doing what you have called us to do. What your will is, accomplishing your will. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's Jesus that comes into our lives that prepares us. It's that coming into that relationship with him, experiencing that forgiveness of sin, that shame that has been wiped away and cleared on our account, that we get to serve him. It's It's Him making us complete to do the will of the Father. God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will must be the primary object of the Christian's prayer. And that was convicting because how often and how easy it is to go to prayer, Lord, I need this real quick. I need this help here. I need, I need, I need. How opposite is that of what Jesus taught us? He goes, don't worry about the needs. He already knows what they are. He he desires that his disciples are seeking his will for the kingdom, for the name to be proclaimed in the world. But he doesn't stop there because our personal needs are of concern to him too. But they're not the object of our prayers. Because he teaches us in the next verse, in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And the... The idea behind this is the request for sustenance. Lord, literally give us bread. Give us the thing that energizes us so that we may follow through with your will, that we may accomplish your will. We shouldn't be ashamed to ask for these needs because he already knows. 
But the context of this prayer always has the plural in there. Our. We don't say, give me my daily bread. Give us our. Because we're to think not only of our own needs, but the needs of our brothers and sisters. Praying for them, knowing that they're in need too. Lifting them up before the Lord. We ask the Father for the sustenance we need to do His will and to stay energized for His purposes. In Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, this is a wonderful proverb. Write it down. It's good to remember. It's a prayer. He says, remove falsehood and lies from me. Don't let me be an actor. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Think about it. Those are needs, things that we would, people would pray, Lord, make me rich so that I can take care of all these things. Lord, save me out of being poor. I don't want to be poor. He goes, give me neither poverty or riches, but feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. It's a powerful proverb, right? Yeah, you figure the guy's the wisest dude in the world and, and he's writing all these things down for us. God gave him that wisdom. But Lord, give me exactly what I need to stay the course, to keep walking with you, to keep being your disciple. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Debts here is used of a moral and spiritual uh, debt to God. Jesus describes this usage in the parable of the unforgiving uh, servant. Remember, he, he told us this parable of a man who uh, had a servant who owed him a great amount of money, and he called him into account, and, and the servant was begging and pleading, Lord, I don't have the money, I don't have it. And he goes, all right, I take care of it. Your debt's forgiven you. But that servant had a servant. And he went out and he found him because he owed him a debt. And it says he, he, um, he went up there and he, and he said, give me the money you owe me. And then the man begged and pleaded for mercy. I don't have the money. You, just give me some time and I'll pay you. And he goes, no way. And he sends him into prison and locks him up. And then when that man's master heard, he goes, yo, dude, what did I just do for you? And then you did this? We ask for forgiveness in proportion as also we have forgiven those in debt to us. It's something to reflect upon. Luke 17 says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's simple. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, I say, repent. You shall forgive him. Again, Jesus' words are simple, right? Look what the apostles say. Lord, increase our faith. This is not an easy thing to do. But that doesn't mean that we're not called to do it. It's not easy, but Jesus still says we have to do it. This part on forgiveness is so important that Jesus actually follows up the prayer again, speaking on the topic of forgiveness. It's not an easy thing, but it is required of a child of God to forgive. In verse 13, he goes on to say, and, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. James tells us that God does not tempt anyone. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desires conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The word temptation here means trial or test. It's the same 
usage that James uses, James uses in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, When brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. These testings, this temptation that we're praying against, is anything that would be greater than we can bear. It's to seek the Lord to keep us close to Him. Lord, don't let us enter into temptation that is too much for us. And we have a wonderful promise of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So built into this prayer of us desiring all these petitions that are for us, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive others, lead us not into temptation. They're all requests of him to keep us in line with him. Lord, give me the energy to do your work. Lord, help me to forgive others because I want to be right with you. I want to be accepted by you. Do not lead me into temptation. Don't take me down a road or anything that's going to cause me to fall away from you. The evil one could mean the devil or it could just be a person seeking to do evil. It, it's, it's anything that would seek to draw us away from God. And the, the prayer beautifully ends with a doxology. Now, there is some dispute on whether maybe a scribe later on copying down, translating these, or not translating, but um, copying the words and added this in there because it was a beautiful sentiment. The thing is, is it's not that it's something new or not recognized in Bible. If you look in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted head over all. How beautiful to wrap up all of this, that our Father that's in heaven, we end the verse meditating on whose kingdom it is, whose power it is, whose glory all of this is for. And then it, he wraps up this teaching on prayer again with forgiveness. If you forgive men their trespasses, in verse 14, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass or your trespasses. These are all conditional statements made so that we fully understand that if there is no forgiveness on our part, then none can be received from the Father as well. This word trespass means literally to fall to one side, a lapse or a deviation from the truth or uprightness. Jesus warns against this when praying in Mark chapter 11. Ties it back into why it's so important. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 through 26, he says, And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Those are pretty strong words, right? There is no permission for us to hold on to unforgiveness in our lives as we approach the Father. As we go to pray or minister on His behalf, there's no room for unforgiveness. It has to be given. You see, it's Jesus, our Savior, who has extended forgiveness to us. He has made us right before God. He took the penalty of our sins upon Himself and has forgiven us all who come to Him. He has forgiven because He took that penalty that we might have that fellowship with the Father. 
We have forgiveness because Jesus himself laid down his life for us. Taking all our trespasses upon himself and praying for them, or paying for them on the cross. There's no greater example of forgiveness than Jesus. He is the reason we can approach the Father, or God as Father. The greatest sinner can find forgiveness with God because of what Jesus has done. The most devious and wicked person can find forgiveness with God. The most hypocritical religious person can find forgiveness with God. Because of the cross of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says that that is that God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We have that message to share. We have the hope of forgiveness to share with others. And we can rejoice because Ephesians says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore, we ought to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I thought it was pretty fitting that today we would take communion. Wrapping up on the forgiveness and forgiving others. You see, Jesus teaches us to pray because we don't naturally know how. He teaches us to pray because we are fallen sinful men and women. On our, and on our own, we use prayer as a means for selfish gain. But Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and how to pray because he has redeemed our relationship with the Father. It is a new thing that he has done. And we have access to the Father because of the cross of Christ because our sins have been dealt there.